Today's episode is titled Understanding the Core of Conflict in Marriage. And its end result should be to reveal how God's Word illustrates how conflict actually happens. Now, this seems like a sort of obvious topic with obvious answers, and often that's treated as such in the secular world. But one of my aims in this is to show that there is a way to try to get at a deeper understanding if it's suited, it's uh, searching through the word. But before I do that, um, I feel, and it's unfortunate that I have to do that, is to sort of frame this because it's actually an surprisingly, and in my mind, unnecessarily controversial topic. And I think for us to get the most out of it, we have to first make sure we're on the same page in terms of what we expect from the Word and how do we interpret that. And so, the first sort of question to frame that is, how do we as Christians answer questions where we may have strong pre-existing opinions already? And those opinions have been shaped by tradition and culture more than the study of the Word. And I think there is there are very few topics where this is more heated and there is more misinformation than when it comes to the nature of men and women, husbands and wives. And so and this is the question that we want to answer is, it can't, what does it take to get at that underlying truth? So I want to start with 1 Corinthians 2.14 to sort of give us some of that framing. And we'll continue to revisit this throughout some of these subsequent episodes. So here it is, the Word of God. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. So, when we pull this out, and, and there's the, the, this, this verse actually is part of a broader section in 1 Corinthians, which is com- comparing the, the world's knowledge to God's knowledge, and one is foolishness compared to the other. So, when we read this, what are these things of the Spirit of God? When we ask ourselves, man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, which are foolishness. Um, So, we know that if it's foolishness, they receive it as foolishness. When we read the rest of the passage, we we, we should recognize that that's in contrast with that which comes from God. And we know that whatever it is, it cannot be discerned through our nature, through our flesh. They must be, as it says, spiritually discerned. So, what what are one of those things, if we were to sort of guess, well, well, what must one of those things be, or what is it likely to be? And we know that that which we receive from God when we ask Him is wisdom. That's James 1.5. And so, it feels like a reasonable exposition, a reasonable interpretation is that wisdom is included in that understanding that we receive, that thing that we receive through the Spirit of God, and 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 if that's wisdom, we can start to ask, can we apply that wisdom? Would the wisdom that we are able to receive, discerning spiritually through the Spirit, which I interpret as, it means we can receive it when we're um, 
the Spirit is within us, which means we have been regenerated. We have repented and we have the Spirit within us. It would likely include an understanding for God's will of that institution which He holds the highest regard of, He creates, and He designed to express the gospel. So that would be marriage. And that wisdom, however, needs to contend, which says in the beginning, the natural man, and I believe that the natural man refers to the old man, which has been crucified from Romans 6.6 6 of the Christian. It's our old ways, the fleshly nature. So, th- this is a very long-winded way, but it's, it's really starting to ground that there are distinctions between the way we understand things through our flesh, the nature, natural man part, what should have fallen away as the old man, and the re- regenerated person through the spirit. And so, as a result of that, it is quite possible that a reading of the text in Scripture on the nature of man and woman in a marriage, especially the nature of their sin, which we know is already in contention with the world. They don't want to hear about sin. They don't want to acknowledge it. That will inevitably butt heads with your convention and the broader culture from which you're deriving your opinions. So that's a way to establish whatever we're going to get to, I am acknowledging there really could be, for some of you, a lot of conflict, a lot of disagreement with what I'm saying. And that's to be expected if we're diving into the scripture. Now, I'm not saying that my interpretation exposition is 100% correct, but it does mean if you have a disagreement, ensure that you're doing it through your own discernment of the word from a spiritual perspective. So, we'll talk further about what that means And I'll try to illustrate that further as we go along. So now that we've got that out of the way, here's the next step. Is The question I would frame is, do you believe that although men and women are of equal worth, and and I take that, there's plenty of other places probably, but a good starting point is Romans 10, 12. And although he's really referring to the quality of Jews and Gentile, I, I believe we could say that and extrapolate that across all people, all races, all geographies, and then ultimately all all genders, all sexes. Um, do we believe that despite their equality and worth in God's eyes in their creation, there are also differences in their roles, their strengths, expectations, and their sinfulness? So I believe the answer is yes. And let's take a look and see how, how do I get there. So the first thing is we know that uh, God, man was created first, but God says in Genesis 2.18 that it is not good for man to be alone. So the question we can ask is, well, is he feel that it's not good for him to be alone because the state of loneliness, uh, loneliness itself is bad? And it, it, this section kind of is interesting if you meditate on it, because did God make a mistake? He, he knowingly created someone alone, and so is loneliness something he overlooked? And I would argue that it's not. He doesn't seem to have an issue with the loneliness. He says, God will make a suitable helper, and that is Eve, for Adam, also from Genesis 2.18. So, if we frame it as, well, it's a helper. It's not just a companion. He could have said it's just a companion, but he says it's a helper. So, let's ask ourselves, why does anyone, you, me, need a helper? 
It's because the person in need of the helper, so let's say in this case is Adam, is missing total self-sufficiency. And that means they need help that's offered by another person. It cannot be achieved on one's own. And so if it's something that's on one's own, a reasonable expectation is that there is something in the man, a weakness that the woman should offer to shore up and potentially vice versa. So it stands to reason to me if we acknowledge that with one needs a helper, it's to fill in the gaps, so to speak, of a weakness in the other person. It's not simply loneliness, but they need a helper. So therefore, they fill in that gap. But if they can fill in that gap, they can't be exactly the same. They can't be identical because two identical people can't fill in necessarily each other's gaps. We have to reason that she's different. But if we accept that she's different, and she was different because she fulfilled God's will of having Adam have a helper, can we then accept that she's not only different in good ways, those ways of being a helper, but in the bad, sinful ways post the fall as well? And I would say, yeah, how how can you argue that someone is indefinitely different, those differences are good, but only good? There is no negative outcome of being different. And in a fallen world, I think it's a pretty reasonable expectation. They are different. They're different different in good ways, but they're also different in bad ways, despite equal value. So, if we've gotten to this point, and, I, and I've gone going through this slowly just to make sure, because many people argue this point, there are no differences. We're exactly equal. We're supposed to be the same. And, and I think that's a very weak foundation to start, you know, Um, expositing the rest of this, because the next part becomes much more controversial. But I think if we acknowledge that there are differences, doesn't it make sense to understand the actual source and nature of this difference? So, let's, let's take a step back, and just in case you're like, no, I can't really accept that, we have to be completely egalitarian, exactly the same. So, what do you gain from the worldview where everybody's exactly the same and we don't need to bother looking at the differences? Well, well, the problem is that um, if there is some foundational element in how God created us, he created them equal but different, then the source of conflict likely could lie in that very fundamental difference. But if we choose to overlook it, by saying, well, we can't, we can't look at those things because it implies we're different and we believe they're exactly the same, that there's no benefit. In some ways, you're trying to believe a culturally accepted view, but you may be missing an insight that uncovers what the real problem is. It's a, it might be a first principle root cause of the problem. It's kind of like looking at any problem that you can imagine, say, I'm only going to look at the surface Maybe it's a sickness, but you're not going to look at what could be the underlying thing. It could be nutrition. It could be a gene. But you're just looking at the surface and say, I don't want to look at something underneath because I don't want to acknowledge that there might be something in my DNA or in my diet that's causing the problem. I'm only going to look at the problem that I'm having with my skin and just try to figure it out. And, And do you see how difficult it is to solve problems when you're only operating at the surface? And many people call that looking at first principles or root cause if you're in sort of a uh, engineering mindset. So, perhaps that you're wrong 
if you are holding on to this egalitarian thing, then then you miss the 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 root cause. Now let's say um, let's say you're actually right, and there is no substantive difference. And we've kind of gone down this path to try to say, well, hey, we believe that there's some fundamental differences, and here's what we believe they are according to God's word. But let's say we're wrong in saying that they are differences, and you're right that there are no differences between a man and a woman. Well, you'll be able to uncover and and determine and discern for yourself that there is zero resonance and zero applicability if we've exposited this. So, in other words, I believe we can uncover and understand and see in the real world, in our lives, in the culture at, lo- at large, that there are, in fact, differences between a man and a woman in the nature they sin, and that's a source of conflict. But because I am able to raise those up and say, this is what I think those are, if you say, no, those don't apply to me at all, you're completely free to then not go with this conclusion. So you don't actually lose anything because in the end, you still need to surface it and say, well, does this make make sense in the real world? However, if I'm right, and it may uncover a root cause that you hadn't considered, and you may see a pattern in the world formed by society that actually is the underlying truth, So I'll say, at least for the purposes of the argument, that holding any disagreement in suspension actually will benefit you, because either way, you'll gain a deeper understanding of human nature. You either realize, oh, there is a deeper truth in God's Word in this difference, or I present it, and then you try to validate it in your own experience. You say, it doesn't doesn't hold water, and then you move on to back to your world view. So I'm going to continue to refine this. This feels like a big setup, but it is essential, disturbingly so, to do this. So let's do a quick recap of where I'm trying to get to just just in this setup. The first one is the full counsel of God is discerned spiritually, and it will seem foolishness to those who are still living out of their flesh or unregenerated, and they will not be able to discern it unless you're inhabited with with the Spirit. And one of those things is that man and woman are equally valued to God, as all men are, all humans are, but they're going to be different in their roles, responsibilities, and sinfulness. And so, if we believe that's the case, if there is perhaps within the text itself something where God's revealing about the nature of marriage, then that should benefit you, because if it's the core of every marriage, and it's the core of conflict in every marriage, and you haven't addressed it, then that is a meaningful starting point. In fact, it might be the very thing which can turn it around. So, here's question four. We're actually going to get deep into the actual text and try to uncover this difference. And the question is, what meaning and application, if any, can we find just in how the serpent deceived Adam and Eve in the garden and how God cursed this first fallen marriage. Is there any meaning in looking at this? And, and, and this may seem like a strange exercise in and of itself. And one of the challenges is that some of these familiar stories just become stories. But they're not just stories. We have to look at it as the full counsel of God. So let's take a look. We're going to look through Genesis 3, 1 through 6. So it starts, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God has made. 
He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So I'm going to stop here and and then start to hone in and we'll go through the rest of this text together. So the first question is, is there anything we can take from the fact that the serpent chose to deceive first? And one possible hypothesis could be that the serpent saw Eve easier to deceive than man. And therefore, that gullibility, that ability to be deceived, continues on the lineage for all daughters of Eve. So, this already may feel, oh, there might be a lot of natural pushback because an instinct would be, well, I'm not more gullible than this man. But let's look at what the text says and let's try to think and reason through this together. So, the first verse says, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast. And so, I would ask, well, is it reasonable to expect that a creature who is supposed to be craftier than anybody else would actually be able to pick the path of least resistance in their target, in their victim? Or, it's totally random whom they choose to deceive. And so, I I, I would say that it seems reasonable that if they are the craftiest of all, then certainly they're more likely to pick the one they at least perceive to be um, the weaker of the two in their defense against his deception. Now, he may not, they may not be, we could maybe, maybe make that argument, but it's, it probably isn't random. Someone who is crafty and the craftier of all, and they're picking, well, I've got to pick one of two people to deceive, to destroy God's plan or attempt to destroy God's plan. Is that person going to be, is that creature, the serpent, going to be random? Or are they going to pick whom they believe is the most susceptible? And if they are, in fact, susceptible and he succeeds, perhaps he is, in fact, correct. So, I would say that the act of picking Eve first suggests that Eve is, in fact, between the two, more gullible to Satan and to his particular attack vector. And the contrary is true, which I think is often overlooked, is that therefore men are stronger in defense against Satan in these certain types of ways, and therefore they should lean on man as a defense. And a failure to do so in both parties could potentially take, you know, responsibility, shared responsibility, means the marriage is susceptible to Satan. So this feels like it puts a lot of burden on women. Don't worry. Men have their own gender-specific sins as well. But I think it's really worth pondering, is that true? To look both in the world, and I think there's a lot of sort of more generalizable observations about the world, right, as we exegete the world that supports this, by turn to you and ask, can you have a discussion in terms of who is more likely to be deceived, the wife or the husband, and to really talk about that. And we'll give you, in the next section, just a little bit more coloring on how to talk about this. And and I realize this feels sensitive, but isn't it worth understanding the deception and the nature of the deception if there is even a chance that God's word is in fact true? So, 
Let's take a look. First, how does the serpent attack? And I would say, if you look at it, his first part is he introduces doubt. So, the serpent says to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Right? He's already introducing doubt. Now, her response is actually good. She reaffirms God's command. Reaffirms God's command. And so, there, there is some level of resistance. But the question is, what did he say to succeed? He picks a very specific response. He says, you will be like God. And then, the nature of that, what is the nature of that, right? There are many ways one can be God. There's many ways that, uh, in the, uh, that, that Satan can tempt people to feel like God. We can look at the temptation of Christ, which are slightly different forms of temptation, But, let's continue. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Let's spend some time on that. He is thinking, what can I say to deceive this person? What is the temptation? Knowing good and evil. What is a modern representation of being like a God? Because many of us, our first pass, like, I don't want to be like a God. I would never say I'm like a God. And most people wouldn't verbalize, I want to be like a God. But notice what it says. It says, knowing good and evil. And I started to see the connections in secular books, which are talking about the differences. So, secular culture sometimes actually does affirm there are differences in the way men and women interact in a relationship and in a marriage. And those have both said a common thing that they see is judgment, specifically presuming to know someone else's motive and then assigning value to that. You can argue everybody does this, and probably true to some degree, but here I turn it back to you in terms of your own evaluation of the world broadly and in your own relationships. Do you find you experience that? According to the secular book, there is something within that, and we'll go much deeper into it, but it's the godlikeness, the desire, is to be able to judge and believe you know someone else's motive. Now, someone could say, oh, that's pop psychology. It's really hard to do this. But whether they're sociologists or psychologists, there does seem to be, from what I can tell, some way. And so, and so two of the ways, some so, so, to ground this, they are, these are two very specific behaviors. The first one is being critical. That is judgment of their husbands. They're criticizing. When they say, you haven't done it well, you're not doing it well. The related one is unspoken expectations. When you judge someone for not knowing what has been unspoken, that is a judgment. That is being God, literally being God. Okay. So, so, so first of all, we've got that basis of this. And I want to pause here. We'll go on to the next episode, but I because there's a sort of a heaviness to this. But I wanted to start. How how are you receiving what I've uncovered so far? Are you able to sort of digest, meditate, and talk upon talk about there are differences? And perhaps we do need to acknowledge that the first part of the sin by the first, you know, uh, woman was 
a desire to be like a God and to be judging and knowing good and evil and to explore, is that something that you can see? And if that's the case, then perhaps we start to become more appreciative of God's word in showing us some deeper motivations and giving us the the grace to avoid the conflicts that we need. So, um, I'm going to pause on this one, and we're going to continue to the next part, which is, well, what is the sin of man? What is what is what was Adam's sin? And then more deeply, which I think is sort of the more exciting and perhaps challenging part, is what is God's curse? So, um, we'll continue this, and thank you for listening.